Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 8. Uh, also, in, in, encourage you to take your hymnals, stick them on your lap as well. Turn to page 855, not hymn 855, but page 855. And as you, as you turn, uh, I, I want you to think about uh, a time in your life when you did something uh, to someone that greatly upset them. And uh, you, you sinned against them in a serious way, a serious offense uh, that led to a severe fracture in that relationship. And then think about those times when you did that, but then you were able uh, to apologize by God's grace. You were able to, to mend that relationship. The apology was accepted. There was forgiveness. There was reconciliation. But I wonder, what were the next few times that you saw that person like? Uh, was there some degree of, of hesitation? Uh, were you a little gun shy around them? Were you wondering, what are they really thinking, right? Are, are things really patched up between us? Uh, it, or is there this lingering awkwardness, a lingering uh, perhaps distance between you and that person? Uh, because we are sinners sinning against other sinners, oftentimes uh, that is the case in our human relationships, right? The, uh, people hold grudges. They, they say that they forgive us, but then they tend to bring things up uh, to themselves, to other people, uh, to uh, us, uh, and so perhaps it's understandable that uh, with those that we have sinned against, that we've deeply hurt or disappointed uh, or failed, we might still tend to tread uh, lightly uh, around them. We might be cautious, even fearful or suspicious uh, as we are around them. But now I want you to think about your relationship with God. I wonder if that's how you relate to him when you have sinned. Uh, if it is, it ought not to be. All right, we've read this morning from 1 John chapter 1 uh, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, one of the great and helpful paragraphs from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I hope you're, you're there on page 855, is found in this chapter 11 on justification. Uh, and listen to these words. They write, God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from their state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. This is a, a, a beautiful paragraph because on the one hand, it helps us to, to, to realize that, yes, when we sin, we do experience God's fatherly displeasure. But when we humble ourselves, when we confess our sin, when we renew our faith and repentance, then the light of God's countenance, his fatherly pleasure, his smile is absolutely, categorically, definitely restored unto us. In, in our story this evening from Joshua chapter 8, we see that paragraph beautifully illustrated. It's the aftermath of Joshua chapter 7, uh, Achan's sin of coveting, of taking, of, of lying about some of the things that God had, had devoted to destruction. You remember uh, from when Pastor Dean preached on Joshua 7 uh, that it had led to Israel's defeat at Ai. But under Joshua's leadership, Israel had dealt decisively uh, and appropriately in seeking out Achan and then in destroying him as the troubler of Israel. But now what? How will God respond? D does Israel need to walk on eggshells around him? 
Uh, is God insincere in his forgiveness? Is he, does he forgive but not forget? Is his fatherly displeasure still upon his people? Does God hold grudges? Well, read with me from Joshua chapter 8, and let's see what we learn about the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of Yahweh. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, they hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, 
were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of Yahweh that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In this passage, we are reminded that our God is a faithful and a gracious God to his believing, repenting people. And we see this in several ways. First, you see in this text that our God is a God of second chances. And this point is screamed throughout the entire story, isn't it? Israel had been defeated at Ai in chapter 7 because, as the Lord states in chapter 7, verse 11, they had sinned. They had transgressed God's covenant. They had failed to obey God's word. They had taken some of the things that God had devoted to destruction, that God had had put under the ban. And so in chapter 7, verse 12, we read that they, Israel, had been put under God's ban. They had been devoted to destruction. But then what happens? They deal with the sin that is among them. They remove those things that God wanted to be removed, that God wanted to be destroyed. Finally, guilty Achan and his entire family and all his possessions are destroyed. They're burned, they're stoned. And so in chapter 7, verse 26, we read that Yahweh turns from his burning anger. He turns from his righteous anger against his people. He turns away from it. But put yourself in, in Joshua's sandals. How was Joshua to know that God had turned from his anger? He had done what God had told him to do to Achan. But how was he to know that God really was reconciled to them? How was he to know what to do next? How would he know, right, if he should even go back to Ai in battle? Well, Joshua knows because God speaks to him. God tells him what? Do not be afraid Do not be dismayed. God reaffirms his commitment to give Israel the land that he had promised. Do not fear, he says. Do not be dismayed. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. God does not abandon his sinful people. He does not give up 
on them. Rather, he gives them a second chance, or if we were counting all the way from the Exodus, a hundredth chance, right? You know the story. I am assuming that you need to hear this word of grace tonight. Our God is a God of second chances, right? Just like Israel, we have failed. We do fail. We will fail. How easy it is to grow fearful of God, to grow dismayed, to be shattered within over what we have done. And yet this story reminds us that when we repent of our sin, when we believe that the gospel is true, when we renew our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who covers all of our sins with his righteousness, with his blood, the Lord is quick to assure us of his unfailing love, of his unchanging love. He is absolutely committed to his people and Jesus Christ. Think about how many times this theme of, of God being a God of second chances shows up in the scriptures. Right? Just to name a few, David, after he sins against Uriah and Bathsheba, Nathan confronts him. David responds with confession, repentance. And what does Nathan say? The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Or think of Jonah. Jonah, who was commanded to go and preach to the Ninevites, who refused, who rebelled against God. God pursues him with a great fish. And in the, the belly of that fish, Jonah repents. Jonah believes and confesses his sin. And God renews his call to Jonah to go to the Ninevites. He gives Jonah a second chance. Think of Peter, right, who denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. On the very night in which he had been betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, and yet Jesus and John restores Peter three times after his resurrection and makes Peter, of all people, the leader of his church. We could go on and on and on. You see, when we fail, when we sin and displease the Lord, the Bible is teaching us in Joshua 8 that if we repent of our sin, if we turn away from it, if we deal decisively with it in faith, the Lord says to us, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Think about Achan. Achan did confess his sin, you remember, in chapter 7. But he was forced to do so because his, his sin had found him out by the casting of the lot. He never once voluntarily confessed. right? Even as Moses was casting the lot and it, and it, and it took it, his tribe and his clan and his household and, and his person, not once until the very end does he acknowledge what he's done. It wasn't a genuine repentance. It wasn't a genuine sorrow for sin. It was the sorrow of Cain. It was the sorrow of the world. But when our sorrow is godly sorrow, when our sorrow is truly from the heart, when our confession repentance is like David and Jonah's and, and Peter's, when, as the shorter catechism puts it, out of a true sense of, of our sin and our apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, we turn from our sin in hatred of it, with grief over it, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, when that is what our repentance and our confession is, then the Lord restores us to himself. He doesn't do what David did to Absalom. Do you remember that story in 2 Samuel chapter 14? After Absalom had murdered his brother Amnon for raping his sister Tamar, and for a long while, Absalom was in exile. And finally, David is sort of forced through Joab and a, and a lady that Joab, you know, sneaks in to, to talk to David. David is forced to bring Absalom back. But you remember what he does. He keeps Absalom away from the palace, away from him. So Absalom's back, right? but, but he's not allowed into David's presence. 
that's not the way that God treats us. That's not the way that God deals with us. No, God forgives us even as he calls us to forgive one another. 70 times seven, all right? He treats us with mercy. He sends us back into the game as it were. He sends us back into the fight against sin. He is a God of second chances. He is faithful and he is gracious. The second way that this story tells us this and shows us this is it reminds us that our God is the same even in his differences. He is the same even in his differences. As we see, God sends Joshua and Israel back into battle against Ai, and he shows that he is the same God still. He comes to Joshua with the same words that began the book. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. You go back to chapter one, verse nine, and you see those same words. He repeats his assuring promise. I have given into your hand the king of Ai. He says the same thing in chapter six with regard to Jericho. He affirms that the outcome of the battle with Ai will be the same as it was to Jericho. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. God's presence with his people, his withness with his people. God's faithfulness to his promises, none of that has changed. Nor has God's help in the midst of the battle changed. Yahweh is the general of Joshua's army. Yahweh is the one who in verse 1 directs Joshua to take all the fighting men. And in verse 2, he is the one who tells Joshua how to take the city by ambush. In verse 18, Yahweh is the one who says, all right, now it's time. Raise your javelin. Bring the ambushers out of their hiding and tell them to take the city. God is the one who is fighting for, who is directing, who is fighting through his people against God's enemies. He is the same God. He has not changed in spite of his people's sin, in spite of his people's failure. He is the same. But notice that his sameness operates in new and different ways. Right? We see that difference most clearly in the way that God defeated I compared to how he had defeated Jericho. With Jericho, it had been through this miraculous intervention. Right? Israel just marched and blew trumpets, and, and then God was the one who caused the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down. Right? That's how he did it with Jericho. But with Ai, he defeats Ai by just plain old military strategy. Right? He sends a larger force than Joshua had sent the first time, but this time he also sends a group of soldiers behind the city in an ambush. Now, the text is Admittedly, very confusing. Verse 3 and verse 12 speak of different numbers of, of ambushers. Commentators disagree over the best way to understand what's going on here. Perhaps there were two groups of ambushers, one 30,000, one 5,000. Uh, some say that 30,000 was the whole of the army and 5,000 was the ambush. Some say that there was a copyist error in the original Hebrew. Whatever the case, the strategy that God is using is clear. It reminds me of when my friends and I used to play capture the flag in the woods at youth retreats, right? And you would send a, you know, a contingent of, of, of your friends, you know, directly up against the, uh, the, the flag. And then they would start to chase you back and you would, and a couple other people would be coming from behind and you would grab the flag and you would win. They thought, when did you even get here? Right? How'd you get the flag? God is, is going to send this main force approaching I just like they had done before. They're going to flee just like they had done before. The, the king of Ai, assuming right, that the Israelites are on, are on the run just like before, is going to come out for the kill. And as he proceeds out, when the time is right, those ambushers are going to swoop in from the backside 
They're going to enter that undefended city. They're going to burn it. And then they're going to go out and attack the soldiers, right? Who would, and then all of a sudden, the, the, those who had been, been fleeing were going to turn around and, and we're going to, uh, you know, like a, a big scissor is going to come and constrict and defeat the entire army, attacking from the back and from the front. Some of you may be familiar with the, uh, the Revolutionary War battle, the Battle of Calpins in South Carolina in 18, excuse me, 1781. The American general Daniel Morgan uh, set his troops up uh, in three lines. And, and as the British advanced, the first two lines, after you know, firing a couple of volleys, retreated. And, and the British just came forward you know, full force. And, and all of a sudden, they, they hit that third line, right, which was where the main force was. And in that battle, uh, as uh, the, 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 the British troops came toward the main line, the, the American forces uh, came around them in a, in a double envelopment. Uh, and uh, Daniel Morgan either killed, wounded, or captured 75% of the British force, about 870 out of 1,150. Uh, the victory drove the British out of South Carolina. And a few months later, uh, the war was over at Yorktown. God's victory is even more uh, universal, more complete. All the inhabitants of Ai and Bethel nearby, whether in the field or in the city, are destroyed. God is the same God, but he works differently. We also see him work differently, don't we, in verse 2 and 27 with regard to the spoil and the livestock. In Jericho, everything was devoted to destruction. Everything was under the ban. The precious metals went into the treasury of God, all the rest is to be destroyed. But at I, God permits Israel to keep the spoil and livestock for itself. And, and there's this bitter irony, isn't it? If Achan would have just waited, if he had just obeyed God, he would have been able to have the spoil for himself. The things that he took from God in Jericho. God is different in the way he works. And, and, and that's the point I'm trying to make. Israel's sin had not changed God. He is the same. He is the faithful and gracious God. He is the powerful God in, in both cases, though he acts in different ways. In both cases, Israel is utterly dependent upon God's provision, upon God's power. Ralph Davis puts it beautifully, as he often does. Ralph writes, with God's power, even the great Jericho could be taken. Without God's power, not even the smallest city like I could be taken. And this is the same God, the same power, the same grace and faithfulness that we have with us today, even though God works differently in the new covenant as he does in the old covenant. But as we walk by faith, as we walk by obedience, God is present with us to help us in every way. He is faithful and he is gracious. So we see that our God is a God of second chances. We see that our God is the same even in his differences. And finally, we see that our God fulfills his word. And in fulfilling his word, we see his faithfulness. We see his grace. Isn't it interesting? In verses 30 to 35, there's sort of like a commercial break or a, you know, a pause in, in the battle narrative. It's like when you're watching a TV show and all of a sudden the weatherman comes on. You know, we interrupt this program and you think, ah. Oh, but you're not confused or frustrated if what the weatherman's talking about is a, a tornado warning. You understand why you know, he's interrupted. You understand the significance of that. Well, in the same way here, we've been reading of these battles, and now all of a sudden, we're reading about worship. We're reading about a covenant renewal ceremony. 
And we should recognize that, that this is incredibly significant. This is incredibly important. It really demands its own sermon. Unfortunately, it didn't fit in the schedule. Right? But, but I'll give you just a few highlights because this worship service, this covenant renewal service in verses 30 to 35, it speaks to us of the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, by showing us how God fulfills his word. And the first way we see that is the location of this worship service. From I, Joshua moves about 20 miles north to Mount Ebal. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 11 tells us that Mount Ebal is near the Oaks of Morah. If you do a little concordant search and you realize the Oaks of Morah, according to Genesis 12, are near the town of Shechem. Well, what happened in Shechem back in Genesis 12? Shechem is where God first appeared to the 75-year-old Abram, Abram, right at that point, as he was making his way into Canaan for the very first time. God appears to him and God tells him that this land that you're on, this very land, the land of Canaan, I am going to give to you and to your descendants after you. And what did Abram do? He built an altar to Yahweh. Likewise, in Genesis 33, when Jacob returns from his exile with his father-in-law Laban, he builds an altar at Shechem. Both of these altars were built to worship the Lord, but also to, to symbolically lay claim to the land. But now, this altar that Joshua builds here no longer a symbol, but it is the reality. The land belongs to Israel. According to God's instruction through Moses in Deuteronomy 27, Joshua builds this altar on Mount Ebal and worships the Lord with burnt offerings, with peace offerings. Do you see the, the point? God has fulfilled his word to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. He has brought his people into the promised land. But notice also the participants. There's so much more that we could say, but, but just see the participants of this worship. It's, it's not just the native-born but verse 33 and 35 tell us it's the sojourners as well. It's not just the men, the fighting men. It's the women and children as well. God's promise to be a God to his people and to their children after him was being fulfilled. As well as God's promise in Genesis 12 to Abram that he would be a blessing to all the nations. Here we have these sojourners, perhaps some of them were descendants of the Egyptians who had traveled with Israel during the Exodus. Certainly they included Rahab and, and her family, right, who had been rescued in, in Jericho. Here is God's mission to build his church, a church made up of sinners redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That didn't just begin with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Even here in the book of Joshua, right, God is fulfilling his word of promise. And when God fulfills his word, what is the response of God's people? The response of God's people is to fulfill his word, is to obey his commandments. See, Israel here in these verses is responding to the faithfulness and the grace of God by submitting to God's word. Here's the word of promise. It's been fulfilled. Now respond and obey the word of command. I've mentioned it a couple of times already that, that what Joshua and Israel are doing here was commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Right? Moses told Joshua, hey, when you get into the promised land, this is what you are to do. You're to set up this altar. You're to set up these stones. And on these stones that are covered in plaster, you are to write the law of God. You're to read the law of God to all the people. And what is God 
Why does God command his people to do this? Because he wants them to see that this is to be the, the source of your life. This is to be the very center of your existence. The word of God written and read. The word of God is to have the supreme place in the life of the people of God. And it's not just the old covenant people, but it's the new covenant people as well. The law of God is still relevant, even the blessings and the curses that were read back and forth. They set half of the people on Mount Gerizim, half of the people on, on Mount Ebal, and they would read back and forth to one another. Right? They were able to hear one another, declare these truths. How is it still relevant to us? Well, first we realize that disobedience to the law of God still brings us under the curse of God. By nature, we deserve what the cities of Canaan received. We deserve to be under the ban devoted to destruction. By nature, because of our disobedience, we deserve the death that these sacrifices received on the altar. We deserve to be like the king of Ai, killed and then hung on a tree to represent, as Deuteronomy 21 tells us, that we are under a curse. But what has our faithful and our gracious God done? He has sent his son to obey the law in our place and to bear the dreadful curse for our soul. Jesus, the final sacrifice, Jesus, who was put under the ban, devoted to destruction, who was made like a Canaanite king, though he was the king of kings, so that we might be brought into fellowship with God, that we might have our lives consecrated to him, that we might have peace with God, that we might live our lives according to his word. Jesus has given to us redemption. He became a curse for us, Paul says, so we might be freed from the curse. So the law comes and it reminds us, this is what we deserve, death, right? The whole conquest, and we'll talk about this more at certain points in the series with Joshua, but the whole conquest of, 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 of the land of Canaan, it, it seems so egregious in our modern way of thinking, so wrong. And yet this is what we all deserve because of our sin. And this is what Jesus has taken in our place. He has given to us freedom and forgiveness through his shed blood. But it's not just the law as it points us to our guilt, as it, as it makes us to see this is what we deserve and this is what Jesus has taken for us. It's also having been saved by grace through faith apart from the works of the law, the law still remains as our rule of life. Even the blessings and the curses continue to apply to us. Take your hymnals once more and turn to the back. Didn't write this page number down. Turn uh, to page 859. And we're going to close with this paragraph because it's such a beautiful paragraph that beautifully summarizes how a text like this applies to us. Chapter 19 of the Law of God. I encourage you to read the entire section of, or the holy chapter if you never have, but, but section six in particular is incredible. The Westminster Divines write this Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet is it of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. It also discovers the sinful pollution of their nature, their hearts, their lives. So as examining themselves thereby, by the law, 
they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. And now listen to what they go on to say. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. Although freed from the curse of the law, the curse thereof, threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation, his approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. It's not as if you earn or deserve God's blessing. And so they conclude, a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. They're saying, look, Christians, true Christians who've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we should be loving the law of God. We should be desiring to obey the law of God. It still shows us how sinful we are, how much we need the blood of Jesus, the perfect obedience of Jesus. It still restrains our inward corruption. It still shows us, hey, if you persist in disobedience, you will be disciplined, right? But when you repent, when you confess your sin, our God, a God of second chances, a God who is the same even in his differences, a God who is faithful to his word and calls you to be faithful to his word, he will receive you back to himself. He will give you the strength to turn from your wicked ways so that with Paul in Philippians 3, you can say, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. Right? We press on toward the goal of the upward prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, give us grace. Give us grace to believe that you are a faithful God, that you are a God who welcomes back the prodigal, a God who welcomes back even the arrogant, prideful, self-righteous older brother, were he to come in humility and humble heart, confessing his pride. Oh Lord, would we, no matter where we are, no matter where you might find us tonight, Lord, would we hear the assurance of this passage? Would we be assured that you are the same God, or that you have given to us your law so that we might respond to your grace, these works that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Lord, would you be pleased to help us to live a life of humble repentance, humble confession of sin, a knowledge of ourselves and of our Savior, or that would lead us to desire to love your law, to obey your law with all of our heart, not to earn righteousness, but because you have provided righteousness to us, Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace and Jesus Christ, even revealed in this Old Testament story. Lord, would you help us to walk by faith, to walk by hope, to walk by love. We pray this in Jesus' name.